Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. If we'll open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and we'll continue looking at the text which we began this morning, 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Many of us will be traveling this week, and let's be sure and continue to remind, uh, to be mindful of each other in our prayers, and we look forward to the new year uh, when Things are a fresh start, and we look forward to the ways that God will give us opportunities to serve Him, if He wills, time to be ours. And let's be sure and be prayerful over these next couple of weeks of ourselves as a congregation and as individuals. And let's really strive to look at 2005 as a year that we will be more of what God wants us to be than what we've been in the past, individually and as a congregation. Let's live for God's glory and glorify Him in everything. I suppose all of you are looking forward to the holidays for various reasons. I've got to tell you something that I just hope could come true. Uh, you're going to think I'm kidding, but um, I would really love to have a tin of Miss Sandra Whittle's fudge. I dreamed about that last night. That's the honest truth. I dreamed. I woke up this morning thinking, did I really dream about that? And I remember the, even the tin can that it was in, the... I, I did. Wow. Good stuff. Good things come around about once a year. As we think about our church family, we have a lot to be thankful for. A lot of big, gigantic things and a lot of small things that, that hold a lot of precious memories. But not all of life is easy. And not all of life is something that we would put in that same category of, of a precious memory. There's some things that we would almost or definitely give our right arm if we could go back and if we could change it, if we could just make it different. But the reality is, as we studied this morning, great people have always experienced pain. And this evening, if you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, I've experienced a lot of pain in my life, you know, that would put us in a category of some of the greatest people that's ever lived. Because some of the greatest people that have ever lived have suffered some tremendous pain. But for them, what sets those greatest individuals apart from others that have suffered tremendously, but yet they really failed in their life? The difference is what they did. To whom did they turn? Did they decide to use that as a time to grow? And I want to challenge each one of us tonight, whether we're in the midst of pain or whether that's down the road, it's not if, it's when it happens. Will we use that as an opportunity to grow and to glorify God? Let's read our text together. We're in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. I'm going to read verse 7. We covered that this morning, and then we'll go on into verse 8 and following. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. <clears throat> a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And now our text for tonight. Concerning this thing, talking about that thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then am I strong. As we consider the text tonight, let's go to the next slide and let's see four things that we'll strive to cover tonight. The first thing that we see is that Paul had a realization that no matter what the answer was, he always knew that God was still there. We need to address in our minds the fact that just because we do not receive an answer to a prayer exactly the way we wanted it to be answered, that we don't become rigid in our relationship with God or to exit God out of our relationship, but to realize God is still there. It's not that, that God doesn't care. It's not that God no longer wants to be involved in my life. God is still there, and we'll talk about that uh, more. The second thing is, keep in mind, what we're doing tonight is looking at it saying, when God says no, what should I do? I must know that God is still there. I must continue to pray and to study. Prayer keeps those avenues open to God. Study keeps those avenues from God open to us. Also, I must believe. Now, this is our faith. This is our belief system. I must believe that God's grace is sufficient. And that's a promise. And that brings us around to the topic of trust. Am I willing to trust God when He says His grace is sufficient? Am I willing to trust God whenever He promises that He can be the God of strength that can perfect that in our lives? The things we're covering tonight when we're in the depths of trouble are not necessarily easy to do. But they are the very things that we ought to strive to do in our life. Now as we think about this waiting upon God. Did you notice there in the text that he says he pleaded three times? It doesn't tell us how much time was placed between these times of pleading. But you know, that does remind me of Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember when he went in, he asked his closest to stop and to pray for him and to pray during this time for themselves? And he goes and he prays and he comes back and they're asleep. And he wakes them up and he urges them to pray and he goes back and he prays again. And keep in mind, in his prayer, he's praying not his will to be done, but God's will to be done. But before that, he does pray his petition. He wants this cup removed. He comes back, he finds them asleep again. And for the third time, he goes back and he prays that prayer again. It's interesting to me that one that knew... Uh, his Lord so very well would be that of Paul. He loved God. He loved the Lord. He loved being an apostle out of season to the Lord. And what does he find himself doing when that thorn is in his flesh? Praying those three times. You know, it might not have been that all three of his prayers were on the same evening. Now keep in mind, I'm simply suggesting things right here. We don't know when those three prayers were. But it might have been that he prayed for an entire weekend. He might have spent a night in prayer. And maybe a week later, maybe a month later, maybe six months later, maybe he spent another night in prayer. The point is this. He prayed three times. Instead of giving up after the first time, he prayed. Instead of giving up after the second time, he prayed. And even instead of giving up the third time, he listened to God even when God gave him an answer that was not what he prayed about. That implies something that I believe is one of the hard, hard things for us to do when there are things happening in our life that our prayer would be, Lord, change this. You see, that was Paul's prayer. Remove this thorn. This thorn is causing tremendous pain in my life, and I just want it completely taken away. 
When we have those times in our life where we just believe that something needs to be changed, one of the things that's so hard for us to do is to wait upon the Lord. Tonight, if I were to ask you, first, how important is it to wait upon the Lord? And second, how do you wait upon the Lord? Would you know how to answer that? I'd like for us to read several passages, and this is just a few of the passages, especially in the Old Testament, that deal with waiting upon the Lord. But I'd like to read several quickly, and what we'll do is we'll read several. There'll be two screens of prayers, I mean of of passages here, that teach us about waiting upon the Lord. And then the third screen will show us two columns. And in these columns will be things that we are reading here about waiting upon the Lord. Let's read Psalms 27 and 14. He says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalms 37 and 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Notice this. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Psalms 37 and 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. Psalms 37 34. Wait on the Lord and keep His way, and He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Psalms 38 and 15. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear. Another translation say, Thou wilt answer. O Lord my God. Psalms 39 and 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in Thee. Psalms 130 and verse 5. I wait for the Lord my soul doth wait, and in His word do I hope. Proverbs 20 and 22. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and He shall save thee. Isaiah 30 and 18. And therefore will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you, and therefore will He be exalted, that He may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. And so as we study all these, let's go to this next slide. We're trying to figure out from the Scriptures. When I pray to God and it just doesn't seem like that God is answering me at all, how do I wait upon God? What am I supposed to be doing while I'm waiting upon God? Here are some Old Testament passages that that they lay down some principles of what God meant when He said, wait upon Him. Now these are things we've just read. Notice, our waiting requires us to uh, to have courage, to not fret, to avoid evil, to keep God's way, to listen to God. And for us today, it would be reading the Scriptures to hope, to trust in God's Word, to not seek our own vengeance, to exalt God and prepare for judgment. And that's just from a few of the Old Testament passages that teach us about waiting on God. Now notice the rewards for waiting found in these same verses that we just read. He'll strengthen our heart. We shall find rest. We'll inherit the earth and the land. We can come to know God's answer for our life. We can have hope. We can allow Lord to be the one that seeks vengeance. And we can receive grace. And we can obtain mercy. Now, probably the best known passage in the Bible about waiting. And if you want to open to it or if you want to read from the screen, it's Isaiah the 40th chapter. Many of you would probably say, this is one of my favorite passages in the Scripture. 
It's a beautiful verse that tells us the rewards of individuals that wait upon God. And again, I want to emphasize to you, this is what we must do when we do not know what to do. And it's not easy. There's nothing easy about waiting upon the Lord. But we must learn to deal with it. Here we go, beginning verse 28, Isaiah, the 40th chapter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And notice this description of God. The everlasting God. The Lord. The creator of the ends of the earth. What about this God? Notice these attributes. Neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we don't feel like we can walk, God says, I can help you walk. Somebody says, I can never run. God says, I can help you run. Someone says, I can never fly. My life is too low. And God says, I can mount you up on wings like eagles. In other words, the things that we just believe are despair in our life. God says, if you'll just wait, wait on me and see the difference I can make when you and I make a team. It's interesting when we study the various words and we study the concept of mounting up with wings. Is this giving a, a symbolism here that God will actually spread his, help us spread wings to fly? Or is this a sort of symbolism that actually comes from what eagles do in the nest? I understand that eagles build nests on very, very high ledges, high trees and rocky places oftentimes. The male and the female both look after the young. At a certain age, they will begin to push the young out of the nest. Many of those young eagles are able to fall from that high place and begin their flight. But it's said that a very common practice among eagles is that if the young falls too far, one of the parents will sweep under that eagle and help light them on their back and bring them into a horizontal motion and then let them fly off of their wings. Now, with that being said, it's interesting that God says, I can help you mount up with wings. When you mount a horse, you're on that horse. We're not riding on the wings of God. It's the idea where God says, I can give you a lift when you're not strong enough to walk. You're not strong enough to run. You're definitely not strong enough to fly. I can give you a lift so that you can do that. Who does that benefit come to? Who's the recipient of it? According to the Scripture, it's only those that are willing to wait upon the Lord. Those that are willing to still, during the times of the unknown, keep themselves from evil. 
Move to the side of righteousness. Listen for God's answer. Search His Word. Remain loyal in heart. And so in other words, simply put this way, in the times of my life when I don't know exactly what to do and I've offered prayers and it seems like that God isn't hearing those prayers, what are we to do? We're to wait and remain faithful to God while we wait. And so here we see the Apostle Paul. We don't see a time of rebellion in his life where he said, I wanted this thorn removed, but until God gave me an answer, I turned my back on him. I just quit going to worship service because I wasn't going to worship a God that wouldn't answer my prayer when I wanted him to answer it. Can you think of how ridiculous that would sound if Paul was saying that? But yet, how many of us struggle with that same thing of saying, I want to remain faithful to God while I wait upon His answer. And so it is so important that during that time we continue with our prayer life and we continue being willing to ask over and over. For as, as a matter of fact, if you want to turn to Luke, look in Luke the fifth chapter and let's notice how the Lord urges us in this passage here to continually pray. I've had individuals to ask me very sincere do you think God minds if I pray the same thing twice? Well, instead of you and I giving our opinion on that, let's see what Jesus Christ taught about this. We see Him in Luke, the first few verses, giving what we oftentimes call the model prayer. Just after the model prayer, He taught a lesson. Let's read that lesson, beginning at verse 5. And He said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go in to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Now notice this third one. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Here's a friend that came to the door, and he asked, and the friend wasn't going to give up. He wasn't going to get out of bed and give him three loaves. So he says, I'm seeking it for this reason. I have company at my house, and I need something to feed them. He still wasn't going to get up. Well, what did the friend do? Just kept knocking. You know, I guess I better get up and lend this guy some bread. He's already asked, and I said no. He's been seeking for it, and I said no. He's not going to stop knocking. The Lord says, I want you to be persistent in prayer. That's why he can say, pray without ceasing. God wants us to continually reveal our desires, our petitions, our thanksgiving, our adoration, our praise to Him. Paul, he was not receiving the answer that he wanted to receive. But there is nothing said or implied in this passage that he ever stopped believing that God was there and that he wanted to pray and to learn from God. But now notice this, the answer was... My grace is sufficient for you. That's not the answer Paul wanted. The answer Paul wanted was a substitution. Lord, 
What I have is a thorn in my flesh. What I would like for you to do is to remove that thorn in my flesh and replace comfort there. And God said, I'll not give you a substitution, but I'll give you a transformation. In other words, I'll work through you in such a way that you'll have enough strength to endure it. Now, oftentimes when we speak of grace, we think of Christ's blood being shed and us being saved from our sins, and that is the greatest example of grace that has ever been displayed to mankind. So we're not underplaying that. But the point is, the word grace simply means gift. And so when God says here, my grace is sufficient for you, He's saying all the ways that I'm going to strengthen you while you're in this difficult time of a thorn in your flesh, it's going to be sufficient to carry you through. Some of you that would know history would probably be very familiar with Mayor LaGuardia of New York City during the time of the Second World War and the Great Depression. There were difficult times for this nation and no doubt for New York City itself. He was quite a colorful fellow. And to build morale in a city where morale was very low Oftentimes you would find him riding the back of a fire truck to some fire. Or sometimes newspapers would have pictures of him on the front of going in to make a bust with police officers. Other times you would see him taking an entire orphanage to a ball game there in New York City. Folks love the energy about this man. He had been a judge, and so one particular day he decided to give one of the judges a day off. He went, tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'll sit on your bench today. Gave him the day off. A woman has walked in front of him that's obvious she's very poor. And a clerk was very hysterical, an owner of a store. And so his side was heard first. He said, this woman is stealing from me. She came through and she stole a loaf of bread. McGuardia looks at him, at her and says, ma'am, your story She says, it's true. I stole the loaf of bread. I've been raising my grandchildren. And sir, you know how hard times are. And we don't have anything in our house. I know it wasn't right, but I didn't know what else to do. And I stole the loaf of bread to feed my grandchildren. As a judge that upheld righteousness, he said, you know, you're right. You shouldn't have stole that bread. It's against the law. I'll have to find you a steep fine of $10. And as he said that, he reached into his own pocket and he pulled out a $10 bill and he said, Ma'am, your fine has just been paid. And now to everyone else in this room, I charge each one of you for being, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for living in a city where a grandmother has to steal bread to feed her grandchildren. Every one of you are fined 50 cents and it'll be paid to the lady. He told the plaintiff, take this hat and collect the money. It said that $47.50 was collected that day and given to the woman. What happened there that day? Grace. A gift was bestowed upon someone. 
friends, I need to realize that oftentimes you and I will find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. We'll find ourselves approaching a mountain of challenge that seems so tall that we can honestly say to ourselves, I don't think I can get through this. And those are the times where we're reminded of something that's true all the time, and that is we must lean upon God to get through this time. It's then that we must come to realize that it's only by the grace of God, it's only by God's gifts that we can be sustained to endure these difficult times. And God's grace comes in various forms. In other words, God's gifts. Look with me through the book of 2 Corinthians at two other examples. Let's go back. And let's read in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, in verses 8 through 11. And by the way, we do not have slides on these. But if you want to note something very interesting about prayer and comfort and the way God offers solutions through this, we're about to look at two interesting passages and three by the time we look at our text tonight. <clears throat> Paul had a very difficult time when he was in Asia, and he writes about it in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter in verse 8. And he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength. You hear what he's saying? Human strength could not endure what we were going to have to endure in Asia, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. And then he writes to the people of Corinth, You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. What's Paul saying there? He said God delivered us from death. Our sentence was going to be death and God substituted. God said, okay, I'll answer not only your prayer, but I'll answer the prayers of those in Corinth that are praying for you. Instead of allowing death to come into your life, I'm going to deliver you from that. How does God answer our prayers? Sometimes God will just change the situation. In other words, as Paul was praying in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, remove this thorn, sometimes God answers, okay, I'll remove the thorn. The thorn at this time in his life was going to be death in Asia. And God said, I'll remove it. And Paul says, I want to thank you for all your prayers that that was removed. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, and let's see how God deals with another very, very difficult time in Paul's life. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. Let's look beginning at verse 5, 6, and 7. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. You see, that's a description of grief right there. Grief is one of the hardest things to go through. It wears us down. Our bodies have no rest. But we were troubled on every side. That's what we looked at this morning, the idea of having trials that surround us. Now notice how he describes this. Any of you that have been uh, in grief recently, you can identify with these descriptions completely. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us how? Because He just took us out of the situation. 
No, this time he comforted by another means. He says, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So what's Paul saying here? He said, listen, this was a hard time. Things were falling apart on the outside. They were falling apart on the inside. We needed some help, and God helped us. God helped us by sending Titus. What a blessing Titus was. And not only a blessing Titus was, but he gave us news. You see, the Corinthians had repented. And he's saying here, Titus told us about your change and your spirituality, and he told us about the fact of how much you appreciated the work that we were doing. This morning in our Bible class that I was in, we began the class by saying two or three people just mentioned something good in your life. And a young couple that had gone through a very, very difficult year. He spoke up and he said, supportive family. That's a good thing. How does God comfort? Sometimes and oftentimes he comforts by sending a support system. Sometimes that support system is the congregation we're part of. Sometimes they're close friends. Sometimes it's our physical family. For Paul, it was a fellow missionary, a man quite a bit younger than him, and also a congregation that would send wonderful news to him. You see, in the first part of 2 Corinthians, God comforted Paul by removing him from the situation. In the middle part of Corinthians, he comforted Paul by saying, I'll send people around you. But now in our text this evening, in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, he even does something else. He says, I'll just strengthen you. My grace is sufficient. And so we close with this thought. Do we trust God in that manner? In other words, when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in weakness, therefore most gladly I will boast in my infirmities. Do we trust God in that? Where God says... You want to know when my love, my strength is just made perfect. It's made complete. God says it's when I make you complete. When we in our weakness depends upon God and His strength to work through us, then we become strong in our weakness because we've become a partner with God. I ask you, go back and read this verse over and over and think about God saying, I want to partner with you. I can take your weakness and my strength and do great things. Now, at first Paul was saying, just remove this out of my life. But after he receives God's answer, you know what he says? Oh, 
You mean your strength coupled with my weakness can do great things? Okay, I'll boast in infirmities. Verse 10, I'll take pleasure in them, in reproach, in need, in persecution, in distress. He's almost doing that same thing that Peter did. You remember when Jesus was going around washing feet and he got to Peter and he said, oh no, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord says, if I don't wash your feet, I don't have anything to do with you. And Peter says, oh, okay, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. Do you hear what Paul is doing here? Paul is saying, oh, remove this thorn, remove this thorn. I need this out of my life. And God says, I can work through that thorn, through that weakness, and my strength coupled with your weakness can do tremendous things. And he says, okay, I'm going to glory in it. Tonight, what can you and God do together? I'm not asking if you could change this situation in your life, what would you and God do together? I'm asking it from the text tonight. You can't change the situation, let's say. Now in your weakness, that weakness that you say, I would give anything if I could change that. You can't. But what can you and God do together through it? Paul did tremendous things. Job was the one that said, I know my Redeemer lives. You think he said that before his losses or after his losses? He said it after. At a time where all he knew to do was to depend upon God. He knew he couldn't take care of himself. But he knew his Redeemer lived. Horatio Spafford lived in the 1800s. He was a very wealthy man in Chicago. And he had a son to die. It broke his heart. He had a lot of real estate. The Chicago fire wiped out his real estate. Deciding he needed to do something to bring his family closer together and back on a better track, he decided to take a trip to Europe. But as their ship was about to leave, he had a business appointment that had to be kept. He told his wife and four daughters, you go ahead and I'll catch up with you on the next boat. They did. And an English ship sank them in the middle of the ocean. He received word back from the wife, saved alone. He immediately boarded the next ship to meet his wife. He told the captain of his ship about the loss of his four daughters. The captain found where the ship had sank. And he stopped over that watery grave of his four daughters. And Horatio stared at the water. And you can imagine the thoughts that went through his mind of losing all of his children and so many of his possessions. And he thought back on that event and he penned these words. When peace like a river... Tendeth my way. 
when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. With God, you and I can endure anything that God allows to happen to us. That promise isn't so without God. There are a lot of mysteries and unknown about grief and even about prayer. But the things that are known are so comforting and so powerful. I want to beg you tonight, in the depths of your despair, don't ever give up on God. And if you're not in the depths of your despair right now, make a conviction and a commitment in your life that when things seem to make no sense, you're going to believe this. God is still there. And you're still going to pray to Him and you're still going to read His Word and depend upon Him. And you're going to know beyond any shadow of a doubt His grace is sufficient. And you're going to trust His promise that He can strengthen you. He can take care of you. Friends, Satan has let us down. We let our own selves down. And other people let us down. But God has never let us down. Tonight, if you haven't turned your life over to the one that has been faithful to you every moment, won't you do that tonight? If you're a believer that's willing to be baptized into His Son, won't you do that tonight? Maybe you need to repent of sins and confess sins and pray forgiveness. Come to that God tonight. It's only in Him that things that make no sense can at least make some sense. If we can help in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.